Shut up and sit down. Welcome to another episode of the Super Movie Studies Podcast, a show about show about comic book movies approached from every angle and a community of nerds discussing how fiction relates to nonfiction. I'm your comic book culture host, Michael Maurer, joined by the movie maestro, James Schuyler Houtsma, and our scientific scholar, Grant Austin. SMSP is your premier movie discussion podcast. Every week we continue our journey exploring our favorite subject, superhero movies. Every fan sees the movies differently, so we gather some amateur experts to discuss certain aspects of the movie. Whether it's money, comic books, music, science, or superpowers, SMSP talks about it all in this week's episode... Ever since the world found out about mutants in 73, there have been cults who see them as some kind of second coming or sign of God. I was tracking one of them. They call themselves a sheer N. Sebenur, named after an ancient being they believe to be the world's first. World's first what? The world's first mutant. These describe a specific set of powers greater than any man could possess. An all-powerful mutant. Exactly. And wherever this being was, he always had four principal followers. Disciples. Protectors he would imbue with powers. Like the four horsemen of the apocalypse. He got that one from the Bible. Or the Bible got it from him. X-Men Apocalypse. And yes, there will be spoilers. I don't want to start this first opinions. Please. Popcorn someone, not me. Okay, I will take the burden on to myself. Uh, X-Men Apocalypse is superficial, we'll say that. It's not not nearly as thematically deep as First Class or Days of Future Past, but at the same time I feel like it's one of the most fun X-Men movies to watch. Um, You know, this year we've had two superhero movies in a time frame that told us, you know, oh, it's it's bad to like superhero action. Shame on you. All the death and casualty. And this one comes along and it's like, let's just do what we want. And that was kind of fun to watch. And I enjoy that it got closer, I think, thematically to what an X-Men movie should look and sound like. Popcorn Grant? Okay, so I enjoyed the movie a lot. I thought uh, it had a lot of good things going for it, a lot of um, good action scenes. I thought the humor in it was uh, right on point, not too much, and it wasn't just stupid puns uh, the whole time. Um, You're right, though, it was a little superficial. There wasn't a whole lot of um, deep plot elements going on, but... um, it was what I wanted it to be, I think, so I quite enjoyed it the the first time I saw it. Um, I, I really enjoyed some of the newer cast members, like uh, Jean Grey, Popcorn, Mauer. Hmm, Mike's been Apocalypse. I was in a bad place to go and see this movie, because I have officially reached, like, superhero fatigue. All right, we've already had, as you said, Skylar, two not one, but two comic book movies totaling over 120 minutes each. 
probably close to 150 minutes each, and now you're giving me a third one. And the entire time in this movie, I'm going, yeah, this is good, but <sighs> I can't do this. I'm, I, I need to get out of here. I, I need this movie to be done because it, all it's going to do is ruin my opinion of it because I'm just so tired. But I got to say, I, the, the one thing that I, I, X-Men usually, I don't know if it's X-Men that usually has problems, more Marvel movies, is third act problems. X-Men did not have it. I was very satisfied with this ending. This whole time, I'm like, how are they going to beat Apocalypse, right? Like, this dude is like the uber god, the ubermensch of mutant kind. He is invincible, immortal. What do you use against a guy like that? Oh, did you know we were establishing the Phoenix? Well, yeah, yeah, I get that, but I feel as if you're just going to do what every comic book movie has done before you about that and just sort of hide it until the next movie and not really bring it out. No, we're going to bring it out. Oh, fuck. Oh, all right. Yeah, I believe this. This is totally how this would happen. Gotcha. All right, I'm on board. When's the next one? I'm ready. That was my entire thought process through X-Men Apocalypse. I get what you're saying about, um, you know, how Apocalypse has that pretty cliched and the world plot that, you know, basically every superhero movie in recent memory has touched upon, but I thought they did a really great job in just establishing how fearsome and unbeatable this character could be, and that every time he was on screen, it was like, you know, oh, is he going to say an awesome monologue? Yes, yes he is. This is great. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) It's just like that quiet, oh, I'm so disappointed with this world. (sighs) I will make it better. But it's like it hurts him. (laughs) <laughs> to say shit like that, because it's like, oh, work. Everything is so beneath me. Uh, uh, Although I must say, I was really distracted because with the makeup, he looked a lot like Johnny Depp. <laughs> and I couldn't get that out of my head the first time I saw it. Oh, no. I The one, yes, the one caveat, or is caveat the right word, I have with this film, <sighs> way... Too many characters that were just not touched upon. Mostly just the horsemen, all right? The horsemen were all shoe-ins with the exception of Magneto. Uh, Magneto was the only one to really get a scene. That, but, but we already knew he hated humans. And yet you give us probably the best scene in the movie with Magneto at the center of it. Um, where we, we find out that his daughter is a Disney princess. <laughs> Quite literally. <laughs> yeah, I... Oh, man. I know what you're saying about characters being just kind of sidelined, especially Mystique, who Jennifer Lawrence just does not want to be involved with this shit anymore. I don't want her to be involved with this shit anymore. Holy crap, just take her out of the movie. If she's going to phone it in like this movie, yeah. For real, I was so distracted with that. Yeah. Um, Magneto has, you know, the best emotional scene in the movie, but it feels like every other emotional beat was a direct flashback to first class. Like, yeah. hey, remember this really awesome affecting scene from two movies ago? Yeah, just, just keep that in mind while we mm-hmm. don't replicate that. And yes, Mystique, gone. I don't get how you're trying to make her this messiah, and J-Law is just sort of walking around and sleepwalking through this entire film. <laughs> you're better than that. I know you are. And what was Moira McTaggart doing in this film at all? Oh, seriously. 
I mean, to be honest, what's Maury McTaggart doing in any of these movies? She just kind of shows up to do exposition and then tags along for the ultimate mission, but sits in the plane the whole time? Yeah! Uh, first Class was the same way, but at least, like, First Class, she was this, like, important liaison between mutant kind and the government, which hadn't been established yeah. before. In this one, she was there for a, a weak love story between her and Charles Xavier, but, like, very played out, and so it just kind of seemed not very interesting, and they could have just done without it and probably made the movie better. They made her a dumb bimbo. It was insulting. Don't speak. Oh, my God. And, like, okay, if you're going to include her, you got to freaking bring back her memories before the end of the show. (laughs) You cannot have this absolutely mindless person wandering around. And she caused the problem. Honestly, if Moira McTaggart was not involved in this film, we wouldn't even have Apocalypse. Seriously. The fuck, Moira? Uh, she's, she's just like a balloon that one character is carrying around through the whole movie. Uh, pretty much, and it's <laughs> it's almost it's almost insulting. Not even for me, but just like that a character would be written so placidly that was fleshed out before and just wiped like a like a white slate and left that way. It was stupid. And what about just real quick before we get into money? That Wolverine cameo, huh? I don't know. <laughs> a little shoehorned in. A little uh, bit. But, I mean, they, they kept him there long enough where I was like, I guess this is kind of important. Yeah. They honestly could have just taken the whole Weapon X or Alkali Lake scene out and had a two-hour movie, and that might have played <laughs> a little better. Yeah. Uh, it's cool that they touched upon it and kind of finally portrayed that Berserker Wolverine that we've seen in the comics, but I don't know. Well, how are you going to have an X-Men movie without Wolverine? Seriously, you're left with First Class, which is, like, the best X-Men movie. (laughs) Possibly. Well, speaking of comparing X-Men movies, let's talk about money! Yeah, the only thing that matters. Production budget, $178 We're getting real close to that average of $200 for big Hollywood movies. Although that's also a really oddly specific number for yeah. this movie. Who knows? It has so far brought in $154.5 million. For those of you at home, that is less than its budget. Well, that's domestically, sure. But yes. uh, that's not that great. No, it's not. Um, can it be redeemed by its foreign gross? Let's see, $380.7 million for a grand worldwide total of $535.3 million. It's still in theaters, too, so it could bring in additional pocket change at this point. That is a fair amount above the international blockbuster uh, cutoff point, so good for it. But how does it compare to the rest of X-Men and... This year's movies? Your those are not yeah, those are not X-Men numbers. No. Um let's see here. It has well, it has underperformed in the US. Let's just say that. Uh, it has yet to beat the original X-Men movie from 2000, keep in mind, in the United States, which is at 157 million. Uh its worldwide cum is third behind Days of Future Past and Deadpool. 
which is at number one. It opened the same weekend as Days of Future Past, Memorial Day weekend, but 30% lower. That one opened 90 million versus the 65 million opening, not counting the actual Memorial Day itself that Monday. It dropped 65% in its second weekend, which is pretty bad. Not uh, not a Batman versus Superman drop of like 72%, but uh, pretty close. <laughs> probably not what they were hoping for. All of this, keep in mind, and it has the highest theater count of any X-Men movie ever at about 4,100. They had big hopes for this movie. I had big hopes for this movie, but I think America is done with big superhero action flicks for a little bit. Well, I remember you saying back when we had one of our mailbag episodes that you thought this was going to be the biggest uh, superhero movie of 2016. Mm-hmm. And I could have seen it happening. I could have seen it making $300 million if people had just not gotten sick of it. Yeah, I don't know how much stock I put into the superhero fatigue, especially since we're approaching another quote-unquote superhero movie that's supposed to open enormously, but it feels like if you're going to have so many of these movies in the same year, you need to differentiate them. Mm-hmm. Show them something you know they haven't seen two months before. And maybe this one didn't do it. Yeah, this was Civil War, Um pretty kind of, in just a different X-Men Civil War. Because uh, it was mutants fighting mutants. <laughs> it, it really was. Um, I will give this movie this. I find the characters in this series a lot more relatable and interesting, even when they're just sidelined off to the side, than I do the ones in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah, that's all preference. But, yeah, yeah, but. T- talking of characters, it's an X-Men movie. <sighs> Rapid fire. Rapid fire comic book section time. Because I've got a lot to say about a very few amount of characters. So who should I start with? Hmm? Someone important? Uh, no. Let's go to the opposite end. Uh, the most insignificant character to grace herself in this film. Jubilee. This hurts for the, us 90s kids. Oh, yes. Jubilee, uh, she's kind of a lame X-Men, but there's, she's a fan favorite among few. Um, <laughs> few and the proud. Uh, and uh, But she Great. shows up. Yes, yes. She shows up in this movie as just like a posse member, but dressed in full 80s regalia, you know, yellow jacket, sunglasses, but we don't ever see her use her powers, do we? Or did I fall asleep? No. She showed up to introduce Scott, and then they went to Return of the Jedi, and that was pretty much it. Ah, oh, lame. All right. So Jubilee premiere. I'm still going to discuss it because this is the most Jubilee we're going to see because she had cameos in all three of the first X-Men films, but if you remember that, you're a better, a better memory than me. Um. So she premieres in Uncanny X-Men number 244, 1989. Chris Claremont, the man behind X-Men for the past, like, 40 years, and Mark Silvestri. Uh, born to two Chinese immigrant parents, Jubilation Lee was a talented gymnast with hopes of joining the Olympics, when suddenly she became an orphan because Hitman took out both of her parents. 
She managed to survive that and hide in a mall in L.A., stealing food when necessary and using her powers of emitting explosive plasmoids, or let's face it, fireworks, to evade security and entertain mall goers for cash. A mercenary group is hired to oust her, and she is rescued by an all-female squad of X-Men, beginning her long career with the team. She has been a member of multiple teams, depowered, sort of augmentedly repowered, and then even turned into a vampire by Dracula's son. As one does all those things. As an X-Men, yes. Next character, Magda Eisenhart, slash Magna Lencher. Magda say Magna. <laughs> you know this as Magneto's wife or the mother of both Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver. I mean, we saw her in Days of Future Past and she said a line or two, uh, but this is the moment where I'm going to talk about her. Because <laughs> she premiered in Avengers number 186, 1979. David Michelin, uh, Mark Grunewald, Stephen Grant, and John Byrne. Magda was a gypsy woman sent to Auschwitz during the Holocaust. Her and Magneto, uh, Max Eisenhart, found each other and fell in love. After both escaping the concentration camp, they moved to a mountain village and began a family with a daughter named Anya. Sound familiar? Except daughter was named Nina in the film. This is when he ditched his Jewish name of Max Eisenhart, Magneto that is, and began going by Eric Lenscher. So this is kind of the confusing thing of why he's sort of known by both names. Born Max Eisenhart, but ever since this moment has been referred to as Eric. Uh, they were staying at an inn one night when it caught on fire. Everyone got out except Anya was trapped inside. Eric tried to, you know, run in, rescue her, and free her, but men held him back to try and save his life. And so in that sort of fit of emotional rage, his powers manifested. Of magnetism. Not in the dramatic scene that we see like in every X-Men film of Magneto pulling that fence in the concentration camp, which is honestly probably a better time to have your powers manifested more dramatically. Uh, but this is, this is when the comic books did it. And in his blind rage of his daughter dying, he murders all the people around him that were holding him back. Magda sees this and is so terrified by what she saw, that she fled from him. Uh, later we find out that she was pregnant with twins, his twins, Wanda and Pietro, Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, and she gives birth to them on a different mountain village and becomes overwhelmed with fear. I haven't read her whole thought process and uh, what happens in this comic book, but after she gives birth to them, she walks out into the middle of a blizzard and presumably perishes, never to be seen again leaving her children to be raised by other people. Now we have Caliban again, because if you remember, Caliban actually premiered in the X-Men movies of Last Stand. That's right. I think that was Caliban, or was she called Callisto? I forget, but she could run around at super speed and detect mutants, and it was all just a mess. It was Callisto, or Callisto. Oh, whatever. she had the powers of Caliban as the oh. thing. 
um, as well as the powers of Quicksilver, because they just started mushing things together to fit their needs. Uh, she, uh, Caliban, though, who we saw, who spoke in the third person throughout all of this film, premiered in Uncanny X-Men number 148, 1981, Chris Claremont, Dave Cockrum. Caliban was born with his grotesque features and pale skin, and that's why his father named him after the disfigured character in Shakespeare's The Tempest. Bummer move, Dad. It was a hard life growing up for Caliban, but soon he found the Morlocks, the sewer-dwelling mutants, all with distinguishable physical appearances due to their mutation, so they couldn't live on the surface world without being persecuted. He became sort of a recruiter, being that his mutant ability is detecting other mutants. After a brief time on the X-Men team, he was kidnapped by Apocalypse and worked into a, an agreement to become one of his horsemen as the Hellhound. After that debacle was over, he eventually wound up on more missions with the X-Men until biting a bullet for the X-Men Warpath, which is kind of ironic that Caliban did not become a horseman in this one. Seriously. Caliban knows this. <laughs> Instead, this character becomes a horseman for no freaking reason. Psylocke. Who? Premiered in Captain Britain number 8. 1976, Chris Claremont, Herb Trimp. Psylocke has got to be in the top 12, top 10, most confusing characters ever in this day and age. All right, Probably wasn't confusing when she was created, because Elizabeth Betsy Braddock, Braddock is the twin sister of Brian Braddock, a.k.a. Captain Britain, the UK's premier super mutant. Basically kind of uh, sort of Superman, but wears the Union Jack all over his body. She develops telepathic powers at the age of 16. After that, her life gets all kinds of fucked up. Here are some examples. Betsy had a lover named Tom Lennox. She was inside of his mind when he sacrificed himself to save her, feeling his death. That's one. That's, I'm, that's, I'm sorry you had to go through that, Betsy. In an, an alternate reality version of her brother replaces him without anyone's knowledge and tries to rape her, and in self-defense, she mind murders him. That's also a little bad. Um... Things are not looking up. Yeah, uh, let's keep going. Abducted into a different world obsessed with reality TV, known as the Mojoverse, her eyes are gouged out and replaced with cybernetic ones. Um, this is where she's first called Psylocke, by the way, as the like, kind of title of her new TV show. But she gets rescued from that, only to lose her memory and falls into the care of The Hand, Remember those guys? The Daredevil Ninjas? Learning of her telepathic powers, a member of the Hand uh, tries to use her to restore his brain-dead lover's mind. Brain-dead girl is called Kawanan. Instead, though, their minds merge, getting all mixed up, and half of each goes into both bodies, as well as each body gets half of the other's traits so that they look the exact same now. Psylocke is having a serious case of the 90s. Oh, yes, she is. 
uh, Betsy is now the hand's top assassin under the name Lady Mandarin. She was half of the um, she has half the memories of her amnesiac self and half of Kawanan's ninja personality, all resting inside this Japanese slash British body. Oh, and that second body I neglected to talk about earlier that's the exact same as hers inside and out shows up and starts claiming that she's the real Psylocke, and nobody can really say otherwise because both of them have the same memories and physical appearance. So now both of them are hanging out with the X-Men, which is weird. When the clone died, though, of a mutant virus, the other half of Betsy's personalities and telepathic powers come flooding back to her. <sighs> so all is much better for Psylocke. Granted, she can get through all of the shit she's been through. I'm so glad the X-Men could have their own version of the clone saga from Spider-Man, because that wasn't confusing and convoluted in itself. I hope you all understood that explanation, because I had to reread so much crap to just be able to give that information to you, and I, I don't even think I'm 100% correct, because there's like 30, 50 comic books that dedicate themselves to this entire tale. Oh, by the way, Psylocke can manifest psychic knives which is pretty cool. Also, if you haven't seen in this movie, don't expect any of that. Just expect the psychic knife part. Yep. As well as, what is her motive? <laughs> Why is she hanging out with Caliban? I don't know anything about Psylocke. And then about halfway through the movie, she's in her you know little get-up standing in Auschwitz, and it's really awkward. Yeah. Uh, well, here's the other thing, too, is... So Angel and Storm are the other two horsemen. We're not even going to talk about Magneto. He's fine. All right. He's all set. But uh, uh, Angel and Storm are just two persecuted kids. Someone comes by and grants them power to not be persecuted anymore. Okay, great. Yeah. I can see how some kids want that deal. And then when someone says there's a better way, they switch sides. All right. Because they're conflicted teenagers. Um, Psylocke is a full-grown woman. We don't know the shit she's been through. And then she just sort of kind of leaves when there's a chance to switch sides. And we don't know why. Also, Storm, Angel, and Magneto get these, like, super cool kind of uh, beefed-out body armor sort of outfits when they power up. Psylocke manages to get less clothes. Yeah, maybe the one instance where sticking to the um, uh, comic-accurate costume might be a little ill-advised. Yeah, because Salak is just super hot ninja girl. A uh, hot chick who knows karate archetype. All right, let's get to that last character. Uh, the big kahuna. Apocalypse. Apocalypse. En Sabanur. En Sabanur. X-Factor, number six, 1986, Luis Simonson, and somebody help me with this man's last name, Jackson Guise? Gucci? Guise? Uh, G-U-I-C-E? Guise? Uh, N. Sabanur was born in ancient Egypt and abandoned because of his appearance of gray skin and blue lips. Sounds like a common X-Men motif. He was saved by a man named Ball of the Sandstormers who feels the potential power of the child. The Sandstormers live by the credo survival of the fittest 
So now young En Sabanur takes that to heart, and that kind of becomes his life philosophy. But now, things get complicated, as usually they do. A time traveler named Kang the Conqueror, knowing full well what En Sabanur will become in the future, assumes the role of Pharaoh of Egypt and orders En Saba's assassination. Mr. Ensa, Mr. Nur survives, while the rest of his clansmen do not. But Ball manages to give Ensaba some super advanced alien technology before he dies. He travels into the city, disguised as a drifter, uh, and wouldn't you know, he falls in love with the little sister of General Ozymandias. But as soon as she sees his real face, she is disgusted by what she sees and terrified of his true form. And in this rejection, En Saba's mutant powers kick in and he kills everyone, donning the name Apocalypse. All I need to show is these mutants a little love, okay? And they will stop murdering people. His powers, combined with the so labeled celestial technology, make him practically invincible and immortal as he travels across the earth, appearing as a deity in many cultures. He randomly takes naps of suspended animation to preserve his strength and avoid his time-traveling foes, because he always manages to wake up before they time-traveled to kill him in his sleep. Uh, I'll get to an example. His main nemesis is a mutant named Cable, Cyclops' son genetically engineered to fight Apocalypse. Knowing this, Big A infects him with a techno-organic virus where the only known cure exists in the 39th century. So little Nathan Summers, Baby Cable, is raised in the future under the evil mutant's draconian reign until eventually Cable comes back in time to stop all this from happening by attacking Apocalypse in his sleep. But his trip back in time triggers Apocalypse to wake up Early, now, with Cable in the picture, Apocalypse enacts various plots of world domination uh, that get pretty close, but time travel manages to usually rectify them. So, earlier you said that Apocalypse killed everyone after, you know, he was rejected and whatnot. What exactly are his powers? (laughs) Oh, thank you so much for asking. Because in the movie, you probably can't really tell. Oh, in the movie, they explain it as he has the powers of every body he reincarnates into. Okay, yeah, I get it. Um, that makes sense. Here's an actual quote of Apocalypse's power set from the Wikipedia article, or the Wikipedia page on him, which is just too good. So what? This guy's like Mr. Fantastic on steroids? Yeah, his powers have always been sort of nebulous, but... As long as he's cutting through X-Men teams like Christy Alley through Sizzler, I don't think the fans care. Frank Thierry, interview about X-Men Apocalypse versus Dracula. Holy shit, that's so good. <laughs> if you don't know who Christy, Christy Alley is, that's, uh, that's Jenny Craig. Yes. <laughs> a bit of a dated reference, but for those of you still old enough to understand, it's great. <laughs> that's a great joke. I'm sorry, at the expense of Christy Alley. Uh, <laughs> but his powers never make sense, all right? He's just got whatever fits the writer to make him intimidating. 
because he's just this character that gets thrown in every once in a while to symbolize shit's getting real. All right, get fucking prepared. For anything, apparently. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I'm done with comics. Let's move on to music. <sighs> Freaking X-Men crap. Jeez. All right. Getting prepared for anything music-wise. Uh, X-Men Apocalypse Score is written by John Ottman, returning from his work on both X-Men 2 and Days of Future Past. He's done the Fantastic Four movies. We've talked about him before. Uh, so far this year, being late summer, whatnot, I would say so far that the score for X-Men Apocalypse is probably the best musical score of any summer movie I've seen thus far. And that's because it just... Whereas before the X-Men movies, you know, they were superhero scores, you know, whatever. Uh, this time it really kicked it up a notch with the movie uh, added a lot of elements to it. Big, booming choir, bombastic villains theme. It's a lot of great stuff going on. And I think the best example of that is the opening of the movie, the track called The Transference, when Apocalypse is ultimately betrayed. It really sets the tone for what you're going to hear for the rest of the movie, and it is awesome. Let's take a listen. been in big ensemble choirs before i am so jealous of what is going on in this song because i just want to be a part of it i'm like what are the words i want to be in this group so bad i can only imagine how many people they have in the choir going on here but it's you know wow what a way to start your movie off i'd say that's a major good musical foot to uh yeah yeah well Question, do you know what they're saying? Is that Egyptian? I There's not a lot of info on it, so I haven't uh, read what um, basis they're saying. I would imagine it's either Sanskrit, Egyptian, yeah, some Eastern-sounding language. Mm, sorry, I'm trying to find the YouTube comments have anything, and it does not look like anybody knows anything. They just keep saying, no more stones, no more spears. A lot. <laughs> well, that maybe that's what they're saying. Maybe that is what they're saying. <laughs> <laughs> it's possible. What's 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 going on next? All right. Next up, we have got a little bit of a twist in the music. Uh, the track "Beethoven Havoc" takes place about halfway through the film when Apocalypse hijacks Xavier's mind to disarm the nations of the world. And you'll notice that this one carries a bit of a familiar tune in that the music of the scene is uh, Beethoven's Ninth, which then morphs into 
the original score that is based on that uh, to fit the scene. It's an interesting experiment, and I think it works out pretty well. Let's take a listen. up beyond anyone's wildest imagination. <laughs> Which, honestly, musically, you know, thinking back on the X-Men series, his contributions were adequate, but I wouldn't, you know, pick him out of the lineup to be like, yes, this is what I think of. Now this is what I think of. <laughs> what I think X-Men music, so. <laughs> oh, wow, man, this is, this, this, this. This soundtrack is like fire. Damn. Oh, thank you for that segue. For our last track of the day is <gasps> Like a Fire. Not that pink song that premiered with um, Alice in Wonderland. Just like fire. No. I'm uh, burning up. Yeah. <laughs> no, this one is uh, from the finale in the movie where a surprise character makes a final uh, confrontation with apocalypse and what i like about this track is that it both reintroduces the hope theme from days of future past for xavier and utilizes otman's uh actual x-men theme that you always hear at the beginning of the movie you know that and meshes that together with the apocalypse sound to make a really interesting uh final showdown track and press play Some sick clips, Skyler. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sorry it takes like a minute for all of them to encapsulate what's great about them, but boy, does it do some encapsulating. <laughs> yes. When this one broke into like the original score sort of theme song part, there were definitely feels. Yeah. That. Little, little. 
little chills, little. Dun, 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 yeah, dun, dun, like, Ooh, that was that's good. Yeah, <laughs> but that part that was that was good. Yeah, like, yeah, that wasn't even. It's like you aren't even trying, John. I mean, you're just like, all right, now put in the X Men theme. <sighs> Got these. Yeah, marks. put in this thing I did like ten years ago. Let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> and let's just sprinkle some of that fuels magic on there. Yep, there we go. <laughs> Can we get that choir back in here? No? All right. Well, I'll work without him. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Now build it up. John, <laughs> 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 so you, you deserve a raise. <sighs> a raise to the heavens. Yeah. Keep doing stuff like this. We like it. We like it a lot. To your own music. Yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. No. Um, check this. Uh, soundtrack out when you get the chance. You get the full apocalypse theme in the track apocalypse. You get the continuation of the opening scene in Pyramid Collapse. You get that sing-song that Magneto does to his daughter. It's all good stuff. I I just want every time I walk into the room to just have X-Men Apocalypse something playing because it just makes everything more badass. I'll, I'll adjust my walking stance or, you know, my, my flow to the music. This score so, makes us all better. <laughs> I want more music. Do you have more? I, not at this time. I'm sorry. Ah, oh, disappointing. <laughs> Do not become addicted to music. <laughs> That's a different movie. I know. You have to do something else like no more notes, no more melodies, no more songs. <laughs> Well done. Well done. Uh, see? All right. You got to work with what you're given. Right. Uh, but what I'm given is some beautiful science dis- discussion topics. Isn't that right, Grantifer? Hello, everybody. Whoa. Oh, you hear that That mic quality? Just oh explosion? <laughs> wow. Wow. All right. I'm, Things I'm are glad going right. the, the microphone was a good investment in your mind, Mauer. <laughs> Like Apocalypse uh, came and just upgraded your microphone like he did his horseman. <laughs> <laughs> no more shitty sound quality. No more cutting in and out. I don't have a final one to scream about that could top those two, I'll, in all honesty. That's okay. We can we just move on to science now instead of uh, <laughs> you making dirty references. I, it's to the specific <laughs> film. Uh, all right. Topic one: Magneto does some crazy ass shit with the magnetic poles, or whatever the hell he's doing in that climactic finale, in which he's causing the Earth to implode on itself. Um, not really. So he could be doing like one of two things, and I guess either of them are fairly likely scenarios. It's kind of hard to tell from rewatching that scene, but he's either just channeling the Earth's magnetic field or he's just increasing its strength. So, and that's causing all of the metal and anything that's remotely paramagnetic to align itself with Earth's magnetic field lines and sort of um, flow either to the North or South Pole, depending on the magnetic properties of it. So that's what I think is sort of happening there. This would be bad if it happened in real life. (laughs) Yes, why? Well, for one thing, if the Earth's magnetic field were increased to be, like, as strong as Jupiter's or so, uh, 
all of the water on Earth would just levitate and kind of float away because water is paramagnetic at really strong magnetic fields. Oh, and, all right. Like paramagnetic. That sounds like it's really susceptible to magnetism. I mean, a lot of things are paramagnetic if you suscept them to enough of a strong magnet. Um, so <laughs> you know what that sounds like? Well, everything can blow it up if you find a big enough bomb. Well, okay, so not everything is paramagnetic, but water <laughs> is water special. Water's really cool, guys. Do you research on water? Water's why we are alive. <laughs> yeah, well, speaking of which, we're, what, 70% water, and if all of it would just levitate out of the here? Well, it wouldn't, it wouldn't leave us because the water in our bodies is kind of confined in cells, and unless they lysed, uh, we would be okay. But we would have problems if the Earth's magnetic field were super strong anyway because our brains are basically wires, and so if you induced a strong magnetic field around them, then you start generating currents where you don't want them, and then so basically our brains would stop working. And the brains of literally everything else would stop working. Even so. trees? Well, trees don't have a nervous system, so I think they would be okay. So really, he's just having fun, right? He's just lifting shit at his window. Yeah, he's really not having to do a whole lot other than concentrate all of his power into doing one thing which is just messing with the Earth's magnetic field, which is already there, so he doesn't have to, like, make it. It's just what he's... just making it stronger, basically. All so, right. And it's weaker when you're next to him? Because Quicksilver and Mystique literally just, like, line up next to the guy, and they're like, ah, you're not wearing any metal? There's no metal in your body? That's uh, He's doing some really strong magnetic stuff right now. Yeah, I mean, well... You can't have a, a perfect science scene in this type of movie. So, <laughs> all, right. all right, moving on. Quicksilver jamming out, listening to some tunes during his cool scene. So, I actually found a video on YouTube about this. They talk about the scene from Days of Future Past, but same general principle in this scene, at least. Of, uh, of of how does Quicks the question being how does Quicksilver listen to music when he's running at super speed? We're just yeah. we're just yeah. assuming his perception of life is not always super duper fast, right? Because otherwise he's just walking in slow motion everywhere. I think the assumption is just that as he speeds up, his uh, ability to perceive things also speeds up. So. The two things that could be issues for him trying to listen to music while he's running that fast are the Doppler effect, so sound waves can compress or dilate depending on if you're moving towards or away from them, but there doesn't seem to be that issue here just because the air that has the sound waves is kind of trapped in the whole system of his body between his eardrums and the headphones, so don't have to worry about those relativistic effects which is good, because that would make things more complicated to try to work out how he does that. I was just getting complicated understanding that, because uh, what? Oh, so there's no air in between his ear and the well, sound? No, there, there is air, but it's moving at the same speed he is, so he, he doesn't have to worry about the sound waves compressing. It's like, um, shoot, I forgot the guy's name, but the, the guy who went up in a capsule and jumped 
and did a free fall from space for Felix Red Bull. something. Yeah. Felix. I forget his last name. Like, Ugendarg. I think it began with a B. Felix B. Either way, uh, <laughs> he he broke the speed of sound while he was falling, but he could still hear himself talk because the air within his helmet was moving at the same speed he was. Oh, okay. So that's sort of the same thing that's happening here with the air in Quicksilver's ears. Um, okay, so then the other issue is, and they actually like work through the math in this video that I watched, but the the scene in Days of Future Past takes approximately like 110 seconds, so almost two minutes, and the people in this video determined he had about 0.05 seconds to save Magneto and Professor X, so he had to perceive 110 seconds of music in 0.05 seconds, which means his player would have to run about 1,800 times normal <laughs> speed. There we go. I was like, how fucking fast is that music playing? So, And then that just goes back to him being super powerful and being able to process that information that fast. Uh, normal players like that would definitely explode if they were running <laughs> at 1,800 times. But I read somewhere that apparently his... Um, music player is actually like a government issued prototype that he stole from like the Pentagon. So what? Yeah, like in the comics, that's canon. It's something oh, that was being made by the government that he stole so he could listen to music while he uh, ran super fast. So that is some contrived BS, but I'll I take know. it. <laughs> At least they give some explanation, and they're not just like, oh yeah, he's got a super powerful. Uh, CD player on him or a track or whatever. He's a he's a, well. I mean, I really don't need an explanation. The dude already runs so freaking fast. I can't understand it. Uh, like when he starts punch. Okay, I was so scared in X Men Apocalypse when Quicksilver started punching Apocalypse around like a rag doll. I was like, is this it? Is this how they're gonna take him down? This is some weak bullshit. They better cut this off right now. And so Apocalypse was like, and got your foot. Well, yeah, that would have been kind of some BS had Quicksilver beat Apocalypse by himself. <laughs> That's just, <laughs> would have ruined the whole movie for me, I think. <laughs> All right, so the uh, the last one, the biggie, the one I'm most excited to talk about, uh, telepathy, because that's always fun. So Telepathy? That doesn't exist. Not in the sense that somebody can like transmit their voice into your head, but there are um, this couple, they're both scientists and they both work at the same place. Uh, doctors Stoko and Pratt, and they do research on brain to brain interfacing with humans. Ooh. So, and uh, they were panelists at the world science festival this past year. But anyway, they were panelists at the World Science Festival, and they were talking about one of their more recent experiments, and they had a video of it. And they were able to have one subject in a room at one end of their campus, uh, and he was hooked up to their interface, and all he saw in front of him was a screen that had like a video game type thing going on where just a plane would fly across the top of the screen. And then like a mile away in another room, had another subject hooked up to an interface, and he had no screen in front of him, just had uh, a mouse with 
uh, a, the ability to click a button. And so the goal was to have the person viewing the screen think, okay, shoot a missile to hit this plane, and by thinking it, the person a mile away would then hit the button and cause a missile to shoot and hit the plane. Whoa! I, I thought they were just going to go straight up with, like, all right, you have three options. Is it airplane, bird, or cloud? And, like, they're like, okay, if that happens a third of the time, they, we have to get, like, above 70% of correct clicks for this to even think it's a good experiment. You're saying they literally just, like, click where the plane was? They, they were basically playing a very simple video game with two people separated by about a mile, and they were just... Uh, one person was the controller, and the other person was the eyes, and they just played this video game. Um, so that that's cool. It was successful, but let's talk a little bit about the science behind it and their setup. So yeah. they also... So like I said, in the Magneto section, our brains are basically wires and they're influenced by magnetic fields. So... They also use magnets because magnets are cool. Um, the the person hooked up to the the one who's watching the screen was hooked up to sort of an EEG type setup, mm-hmm. um, which just monitors brain waves and electrical functions. Yep. And they figured out what area of the uh, brain was responding to um, the thought of okay, click the button to shoot the missile and they recorded that signal. And then they sent that signal to the second person who had uh, a couple huge magnets, like the type you might find in an MRI, uh, directed at that part of the brain, and it was inducing a signal within the other person's brain telling him to click. And so it's not really a... And the, the person who has the induced signal hitting him has no real control over what's happening because it's not like a suggestion. It's not like a little voice saying, hey, click the button, click the button. It's they're inducing his brain to make him click the button. That's mind control. A little bit, yeah. But, I mean, he obviously signed the consent to do that, and it's non-invasive, so he really... And this is very primitive research, obviously. All they could make him do was move one finger muscle to click a button. Um, they couldn't make him do multiple things at once. But it was weird. They had an interview with the guy who was hooked up to the second interface, and he was just like, yeah, I really didn't have to think about anything. I just had to sit there, and then occasionally my finger would hit the button, and it would just happen automatically. Uh, So, yeah. Oh, my God. I'm going to need to see a video of this shit. Holy crap. I can try and find one. Otherwise, if you go to the World Science Festival, the rest of the panel was really interesting. They talked a lot about different neuroscience stuff and a bunch of different bioethicists and things talking about just the various issues of doing this kind of thing. The whole talk. No, they live stream a bunch of the talks. So I watched them on my computer because I'm a nerd. Well, of course. Yeah, but the whole talk was on brain-to-brain interfacing, and so that was really quite interesting. Damn! That's some cool shit. So yeah, that's uh, that's my science stuff for the day. Yeah. And since you told me that Ben was just like, telepathy can never happen, it was nice to be like, no, Ben, you're wrong. Telepathy <laughs> can totally happen. Just not 
just not quite in the way that it's portrayed in the movie. Yeah. It's a little, little different. Not that strong. We, we live for those days when we can tell Benny's wrong. <laughs> ben likes eggs way too much, too. I feel like he has <laughs> some sort of obsession with eggs. Oh, that's funny. There's a lot of that going on. <laughs> well, that's a, that, that'll wrap up science section. Uh, I think we spent some solid time there. Um, no uh, guest section fun, fun facts. Sorry, no fun facts. Uh, but we can roll on to a couple drinky game rules. I wasn't really thinking too hard. My mind was a bit numb for this movie, as I've mentioned before. I was just sort of getting through it because I, I felt my duty as a nerd to get through this film. Uh, and 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 but we can we can we can roll out some ones. Feel free to say what you want, guys. Uh, and you gotta. M- my favorite times to drink are every time. Charles refers to Magneto as old friend because I'm just like, man, that is just a stab in the fucking back, isn't it? Because <laughs> like I, 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 there was some skit somewhere that was just like, every time he says old friend, I know that he means fuck you. And it makes me laugh every time I think about it now. <laughs> nice, nice, nice. Take a drink in the scene where Xavier says, welcome to my house. And then the flow rider song plays in the background. Oh, wait, that didn't happen, but it'd be funny if it did. It definitely <laughs> well, should have happened. Probably would have made the movie a little better. <laughs> Just one unneeded pop song. Uh, kind of like Gone, Gone, Gone in Amazing Spider-Man 2. Right, but this time it's a pop song from 25 years later, so it makes <laughs> absolutely no sense. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> should have played Hungry Like a Wolf. So, no, 1970s. What is the perfect song? Real quick, that would have gone... Oh, it, that's our Twitter challenge of the week, ladies and gentlemen. We want you... Uh, uh, give, me a, give me a montage scene. Well, I mean, was the Earth mix out by then? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, all right, all right, all right. So give me something you would have liked to have heard instead of the Eurythmics, uh, Sweet Dreams, when Quicksilver was saving them. But, of course, it had to have come out before 1984. Uh, my addition to this is definitely Lollipop by the Cordettes. I would have loved to have heard that song while he was saving everyone's life. I would vote for Whip It by Devo. Yes, yes. More drinking game rules. Uh, for every epic apocalypse monologue, take a drink. Oh, Actually, so better yet, drink and start drinking at the start of every epic apocalypse monologue. Don't <laughs> stop till he finishes. <laughs> Man, do you have to drink through the entire raspy breath then too? We're gonna go with yes because it's a drinking game and the point is to drink. So, pace <laughs> yourselves, people. Drink responsibly as always. Don't drive afterwards. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh man, uh, drink for every new character. Oh. If you can. If you can. Um, I mean, i got to get more creative with my with, with my knowledge of drinks, right? Because, I mean, there's got to be something lightning-related for you to drink with Storm or Heavenly to drink with Angel or uh, Magnetic to drink with Magneto. Uh, so def- you're just going to line up a bunch of shots like based off these characters, and then as they pop up for the first time in the, in the movie, just take that shot? Yeah! That sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> exactly! And finally, let's rock one out 
for that Stanley cameo. This is the most somber Stanley cameo I think we've ever had. This was one that did not involve comedy, and I can't remember the last time that happened. Probably the old Spider-Man movies where he's like pulling people away from rubble and stuff. Yeah, yeah, those were – yeah, you're right, where he's like, look out in Spider-Man 2, and he just pulls a woman. He gives a, a talk to Peter in Times Square in Spider-Man 3 that was a, like supposed to be somewhat inspirational. I don't remember him in Spider-Man 1. Uh, I remember the dramatics of his – he was part of the jury in The Trial of the Incredible Hulk from 1980s. Ooh, timely. Mm, they should have put a 1980s Stan Lee in this movie. Wouldn't that have been hilarious? Oh, and, a, and his wife, Joan. Don't forget. Yes, his actual wife. Yes. It's actually, I, I think her name is Joan. I, I, I don't remember. <laughs> Any more drinking game rules, gentlemen? That uh, does it for me. I'm done, too. Mm, all right. Let me, let me get a head start on editing this bitch. It's going to wrap it up today. Super fans. Super Movie Studies is recorded and produced by Triop Cop Productions. Be sure to check us out on iTunes and rate us, give us five stars, and subscribe. And we are most active on Twitter. Friend to Twitter, Tom, keeps things popping over there at Super Letter M Studies, Super M Studies. Let us know what your ideal 80s song for the um, Quicksilver scene would be. It doesn't have to be from the 80s. could be from the 1800s. Okay. <laughs> Just as long as it's before the 80s. Yes, that. Yeah. I like how you always say it's like Tom keeps it popping. I'm just... <laughs> keeps it popping. <laughs> He's in the background. It's like, yeah, I keep it popping. That's the only thing I do. Just popping. <laughs> I keep it real and I keep it popping. Yes. That's uh, the highest fine. compliments. <laughs> Finally, we've got tryupcop.com. Uh, this was supposed to be the first TribeCop.com exclusive first week release episode. That's not happening. That's happening in August when I actually have time to do things because we're recording this, I don't know, uh, 24 hours before I have to have this edited and released. So I'm not putting any extra work upon myself for the next couple of weeks until August. My schedule is so free and we'll get ahead of things so that I can start putting up Show notes. I can update the schedule because now the schedule's off. Uh, the drinking game rules will come up again uh, with a bit more up-to-date. Perhaps I'll actually seek out some more scholarly works instead of my one freaking paper from senior year of college. And finally, if you want to get involved, you know, get on, get on the show, man. We want to hear from you. Uh, email us at supermoviestudies at triopcop.com. You know, if you want to do a full, you can you can even tweet us that you want to be on the show, and we'll continue a long form discussion through email, stuff stuff like that, because we just want to have fun with all the nerdy stuff we do. I mean, come on, let's be real. We're just enjoying our time here, aren't we? All right, that'll do it today. I'm your host, Michael Maurer. James Keller Hudsma. And Grant Austin. And I hope you all. Have a super week.